Now, as I read Romans chapter 11, verses 7 through 10. And why don't we read uh, beginning in verse 1, just so that 7 and 10 can be said in their proper context. So Romans chapter 11, verses 1 through 10, with a special focus on verses 7 through 10. And hear God's word. I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he pleads with God against Israel saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. And I alone am left and they seek my life. But what does the divine Response, say to him, I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have, who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Even so, then, at the present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, it is no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. What then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it, and the rest were blinded, just as it is written. God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they should not see, ears that they should not hear to this very day. And David says, let their tables become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a recompense to them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see and bow down their back always. And let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, uh, we praise you. For your word, and we ask you that uh, by the work of the powerful work of the Holy Spirit, it might be illumined unto us to our true and spiritual understanding. Feed our faith, we pray, through the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let me say two things by way of introduction, one of which is. Uh, you may remember my confusion about I say then, what then? Uh, I realize now what my error was last week. I, I, I thought the what then was in verse 1. It turns out it's in verse 7. In other words, what I'm saying is I found the what then that I thought was in verse 1. It's actually in verse 7. So there, that mystery is solved, at least <laughs> for my benefit. The second thing I would say is that though I don't plan to dive into this at all in this sermon, it is becoming increasingly clear to me that I ought to say something about what I would call Zionism, uh, that in my defense of what I am describing the Puritan hope, the Puritan hope being the hope of the Puritans and also my hope, and that is uh, the hope that the Jews will one day, though they are blinded today, and that's what we'll see in today's sermon, they were blinded in the days of the apostles, they were blinded in the days of Elijah, the day is coming when their eyes will be opened and they will see And many, many Jews will be saved and they'll come into the church in just the same way that the Gentiles, though they were far off, were enabled in the days of the apostles to come in in a large and a significant way in the book of Acts. That's the Puritan hope. And so I'm contending for the place of the Jews or of Israel in the plan of God. Uh, Some of you... (laughs) Uh, have uh, I understand this is humor, so I, I, I state this is humor. Some of you have thanked me for my sermon on current events, and uh, by by no means do I intend uh, really to interact at all with what's going on in the Middle East. That isn't what I'm saying. I'm not saying, well, we as Christians need to be friends with Israel. That's not the point of anything that I'm saying here. 
I'm not, I'm not stating anything one way or the other. Uh, but I would like to interact with what I am calling, uh, primarily from the dispensationalist schools, Zionism. And uh, at, at, at a certain time, perhaps even in the next sermon, I would like to differentiate what I am calling the Puritan hope on the one hand and the Zionism of the dispensationalist that is so prominent in our nation and, uh, and even in our nation's capital, you may have noticed. So let me just leave that there uh, with the promise of, uh, of distinguishing those things in the future. When I am contending for the Jews, when I am contending for Israel, I'm contending for uh, what the Apostle Paul is contending for. I suppose I'll just say one thing about Zionism. The way that Israel is saved is not by embracing her Jewishness. That's Zionism. The way that Israel is saved is by embracing her Messiah and thus coming into the church. And when I I preach the Puritan hope, that's what I'm saying. The days are coming when the Jews will forsake their Jewishness, you might say, and they will embrace their Savior. That's the hope that I am setting forth in uh, and that I believe is set forth in Romans chapter 11. You know, there's something we, we haven't even gotten here yet. We will in the next sermon. But there is something about prophecy that's always mysterious. And we're so used to it in the Old Testament. But but here it is in the New Testament. And and it always mystifies us to some extent, whether in the Olivet Discourse, that's Matthew chapter uh, 24 or in uh, Romans chapter 11. Well, here's the question. Coming back uh, to, to these opening verses of Romans chapter 11, that the prophecy comes in verse 11 through verse 32. The question is, given the present state of apostasy and unbelief among the Jewish people, has God cast away his people? Verse one, the answer is certainly not. Certainly not. Why? Well, because Paul says there is a remnant that is saved according to the election of grace. Indeed, there always was. And there always will be at least, at least. In light of that teaching, the remnant that was found in Elijah's day, the remnant that was found in Paul's day, the remnant that we could say is found in our day. There are still sons of Abraham that are found in the church even today. There aren't many, but there will always be some even today. But in light of that being the case, remember, the the overarching question is, Uh, Has God cast away his people? Well, no, he hasn't. There's a remnant. Well, what then? Verse seven. In other words, what then is the teaching? And the teaching is this, that Israel has not obtained what it seeks. Verse seven. In other words, to take verses one through ten as a whole, God has not cast off his people for there is a remnant preserved by grace. But this has left us in an interesting position. For we have seen already that God has not cast off his people, and yet the bulk of the nation is not saved. The Gentiles are in, the Jews are standing outside. So uh, the, the position is so striking, it would seem the answer to the question, has God cast off his people, is yes. Only the apostle is very, very concerned that we see that the answer is, in fact, no. The bulk of the nation is not saved. There is only a remnant And so the position is that Israel as a nation, as a people, has not obtained what she seeks, to use the language of chapter 9, namely the righteousness of God. The bulk of the nation stands outside. Again, understand the dilemma. God has not cast off his people, and yet the bulk of his people, 
the Jews stand outside. What is the explanation? What then? And the answer which the apostle gives, not in the least surprising to see, is one that is entirely consistent with uh, the scope of the argument in chapters 9 through 11, which comprise a single unit. And that is, well, the answer is God's distinguishing sovereign grace is the answer. You don't just find the doctrine of election in chapter 9. You, you find it, in fact, in chapter 11 as well. The position then is this, as outlined in verse 7. There are three things we could notice about that verse. The first is, Israel has not obtained what it seeks. We find this being stated as well at the end of chapter 9, the beginning of chapter 10, and the end of chapter 10. And so let us remember that Israel, as a nation, as a people, did seek it, but in the wrong way. And thus she failed to find it. And so much of that is found in the Gospels of our Lord. The second thing that Paul states is that the elect did, or the election did, or have obtained it. The Israel has not, but the elect has. That is, the remnant saved according to the election of grace. Verse 5. They are standing within, while the rest is standing without, or outside. And so he says, finally, in the third place, that the rest were hardened, or they were blinded. I'm going to say hardened an awful lot, but most translations have blinded there. I'll explain that in a moment. That is the rest of Israel, which becomes the real thought or the real burden of the passage. The fact of Israel's hardening, that is the bulk of the rest, the elect are within, the remnant. What about the rest? Is they're standing outside? That's a question you could ask in Paul's day or Elijah's day or our day. What about them? Well, the answer is they are blinded or hardened by God, which is, well, I would say it's quite a way to, to assert that God has not cast her off by telling us that he has blinded her. God has not cast her off. No, indeed, he's blinded her. Well, we are left, you see, with a deep mystery in asserting that God has not cast off the nation. He, he asserts God's work of hardening. Not one about which we are unfamiliar, for already Paul has told us in chapter 9, speaking of Israel. I don't know if I want to read all these verses, but um, just to begin to read them, verse 10. Not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand not of works, but of him who calls it was said to her, the older shall serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated, and, and on and on he goes. In other words, God is already making a distinction in the sons of Abraham at the beginning, at the, beginning of, uh, the line. Not only is he choosing some, but he's hardening others. That's the mystery. The mystery is, that, is, is well, it concerns the hardening of son, some of the sons of Abraham. That's the real mystery. You see, you speak of, a, of reprobation in a very general way, and it, it, it perhaps isn't so troubling. But when you realize that God was reprobating, when he was hardening some of the sons of Abraham from the standpoint of the whole scope and argument of Scripture, it's a bit more mysterious. Certainly from the standpoint of uh, these Jews in the first century who were being converted to Christianity. And, and to realize that that is stated as part of God's broader plan to save all Israel, chapter 11, verse 26, and whatever does that mean? And we'll come to that in due time. 
But it means something like God has included in his purposes a plan to widen the scope of Israel's salvation, to go beyond the remnant and to save the bulk. But that is not the present situation. The present situation is that God has hardened the bulk while saving only the few, the elect, the remnant. Already we can see why there is so much disagreement, why there, are so, there is so much difficulty in understanding the teaching of these chapters, chapters 9 through 11, and especially chapter 11. If we look to what Paul says in verses 8 through 11, he simply confirms the truth of what he states in verse 7. So verse 7 is the main idea, verses 8 through 11. He, confer- he confirms the present position as that which was both experienced and predicted in the Old Testament, uh, Isaiah 29:10, Deuteronomy 29:4, and Psalm 69:22 and following. God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they should not see, ears that they should not hear. To this very day, David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block, and so on. He's talking about the unbelief of the Jews. So then the important principle is this, as stated in verse 5. Election is according to grace. And if by grace, then not by works, and so on. Verses 5 and 6 leading to verse 7. And so if Israel, that is the bulk of the nation, has failed to obtain what it sought, it must be according to the same principle, that is, according to election, according to God's electing purposes. You cannot say, on the one hand, that the elect or the remnant have have obtained what they sought, or rather, if we understand the argument, in fact, what they did not seek, still they found it. You can't say that while ignoring the other side of this. Those who did not obtain what they sought. The reason that they did not obtain what they sought is just the same truth that is applied to the remnant. Now to the rest. They failed to obtain what they sought because they were not elect. Because God in his saving and electing purposes passed them by to use the language of the Westminster Confession. Because the same divine will that elected others according to grace hardened them you see in both cases what determines the outcome is not man but God and from the standpoint of election which is an eternal category it views things in terms of the divine decree the antithesis antithesis of grace is not works for then man's will would be seen to compete with God's the antithesis of election according to grace is judicial hardening In both cases, it is God who is acting upon man. He has mercy on whom he will, and he hardens whom he wills. And so that brings us to the mystery of Israel's hardening. Israel's blinding. blinding. The word in the Greek uh, means hardening, but it is capable of the rendering blinding. And the context uh, speaks when he supplies That they should have eyes that should not see in verse 8 leads many of the translators just to go ahead and go with blinding instead of hardening. Though I do think hardening is a better translation. There's prior examples of this that we've we've seen in uh, chapter 9 of God hardening the reprobate. 
You see, he doesn't just he doesn't just save the elect and leave the rest as they are. No, he's judicially working on them, even as he's mercifully working on the elect. Prior examples would be Esau. I just read of that in chapter uh, nine, verses eleven through thirteen. Uh, the other example would be that of Pharaoh. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, verse 17, for this very purpose, I've raised you up that I may show my power in you and that my name shall be declared in all the earth. The Lord hardened Pharaoh, even as he did Esau. The thought is, as God shows mercy to whomever he wills, chapter nine, verse 16. So in the case of hardening, it is his will that brings this to pass. This is how Calvin puts it in the Institutes. So we see that both things are attributed to God's good pleasure. If then we can see no reason why God accepts his elect other than his good pleasure, neither will we discover why he rejects others except that such is his will. For when God is said to show mercy or to harden according to his good pleasure, it is a warning to us to look for no other cause whatever outside of his will. Why is one man saved? The answer is the will of God. Why is another man hardened? The answer is the will of God. You see, it's the the same answer in both cases, though I'm acknowledging it's a mystery. But it's not surprising, given that that is the truth which is asserted in chapter 9, that that same truth is applied specifically to Israel. Listen again. What then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks. And why is that? Well, the, the elect have obtained it, but the rest were blinded. That is, there were forces which were imposed upon them by God with the effect that their eyes were closed. If the remnant is saved, which he calls the elect, but not the nation, the only ultimate cause can be found in the will of God. Sovereign, distinguishing grace. That is, if Israel as a nation is in a state of apostasy and unbelief, it is because... God has blinded or he has hardened the nation in her sin, even as he did in the case of Esau and of Pharaoh. And so the teaching is this. If the elect are saved, the remnant saved according to the election of grace, verse five, the rest of the nation are hardened or blinded by God. He has done this to them. Look here, Paul says, it's just as Isaiah said in, in his prophecy or, 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 or Moses, God has given them. This is Deuteronomy 29, 4 and Isaiah 29, 10. It's a composite of both verses. God has given them a spirit of super eyes that they should not see, ears that they should not hear to this very day. Now, these men were saying this in their own day, which Paul is reminding us, even as he did in the case of Elijah, this is nothing new. This is what these men of God experienced in their own day. So it's what Paul was experiencing in his day. He looked at the nation. He saw unbelief. He saw apostasy. What's the explanation? Well, here's the explanation. It's God who has done this to them. Or you think of what our Lord says in the parable of the sower. Why is it uh, why is it that the kingdom of God is revealed in mysteries not to be comprehended by others because Because our Lord says, quoting Isaiah once again, they have eyes but do not see, ears and do not hear. The reason that some believe and others do not is because God is working mercy in some and judicially hardening others. You remember, this is how the book of Acts closed, or or perhaps you don't remember that, but that's how he 
how the apostle closes once again, finding the unbelief of the Jews. This is what he says to him in essence. You have eyes to see and ears. Uh, ear, uh, er, you have eyes, but do not see and ears and do not hear. Because God has blinded you. There's also what uh, is said in the Messianic yet imprecatory Psalm 69. David is praying that the blessings might be turned into a curse. A table full of blessings. Can you think of anything that better describes the nation of Israel than that? Their table was full. It was overflowing with blessings given by God. And, and those uh, overflowing blessings became unto them a way of stumbling. The picture is this. They were stumbling over her own blessings. And I might apply that to such who hear the gospel Sunday by Sunday and yet do not believe the very way of salvation that they reject becomes unto them a way of stumbling. He says uh, further, a way of recompense. That is to say, a punishment. They are cursed by the very things that are meant to bless them. God heaps blessing upon blessing upon them only to further. Only to further their stumbling and their blinding. Only to further punish them. They're unable to see the very things that are meant to bless them. Again, we find uh, this is the sort of argument that is found throughout the New Testament as an explanation for why the Jews do not see. Why? Well, verse 10, let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see and bow down back always. Though the truth is right in front of their eyes. Though the sound and the good news of the gospel filled their ears, even from the voice of our Lord himself, their eyes were darkened. And here's the mystery. It's a solemn and it's a sobering one, but that it was God himself who did this. It was God who closed their eyes. It was God who stopped up their ears. It was God who put and puts to this day a veil over the heart of the Jew so that hearing they may not hear and seeing they may not see. What a strange and a terrible mystery that is before us, that the very things that were meant to bless them become unto them a recompense and a curse and a way of stumbling and of judicial blinding. How do we then explain the mystery? Not just the mystery of reprobation, but the mystery that God has done this to his people of old, even as the apostle is so concerned to say that God has not cast them off. And yet he has judicially blinded many upon many upon many. Well, there are three main explanations. One is that he is God. And that's the overarching argument, not only of Scripture, but of of chapters 9 through 11. Just exactly what we considered already in chapter 9. Who are you, O man, to question God when you say, is there any unrighteousness with God? Is it righteous for, for God to do this? Can God be God and yet do this? Well, the answer to that question is this question. Who... Among the created clay has any right to, to answer to God or to question God. His dealings with man, especially man as he is considered a rebel. That's the clay, by the way, not just 
the creaturely clay, but the sinful lump of clay. Man, when he's considered like that, he has no right to speak back to God. We realize that God God has a right to do with man as he pleases, and that man has no right to question God in this. The first answer is because God is God. The second answer is because of the teaching of the Old Testament. That's why Paul supports this notion in verses 8 through 10 by quoting those three scriptures. What we see is two things. One is that God has done this already. And he's done it repeatedly. Again, Elijah experienced this. Moses experienced this. Isaiah experienced this. They weren't just predicting it. They were facing it themselves. David experienced this. They were all seeking to comprehend the unbelief of Israel. Not only did they experience it in their own day. But they predicted that a kind of blinding would come upon the nation such as had not been seen in the days of Elijah and of David and Isaiah. That the day was coming when God would blind the nation in a new way. Of course, we're speaking of the days of the coming of Christ and of the apostles. That would be a new work of the Lord. This is something the prophets told them to expect. It's something, in a sense, you could say that they looked forward to. Something God was going to do. And now Paul is saying he has done it. Now, from the standpoint of the Old Testament, which was the scriptures of and is the scriptures of the Jews. Can anyone be surprised at this when God said that he was going to do it? But the final answer, again, to the question, how do we explain the mystery that God has done this to his people of old? Is that of justice. Again, I won't say that God's justice ever needs to be vindicated. Is there any unrighteousness with God? Well, don't even ask the question. It's not for us to question God, especially concerning his justice and his righteousness. And yet, I would say at the same time, how easily the righteousness and the justice of God's ways might be seen, if only we have an eye to see it. For as Calvin also says, let them not accuse God of iniquity when, by his eternal judgment, they are appointed to damnation to which their very nature leads them. In other words, whenever we consider the fact of God's hardening of the sinner, we must be sure to add the word judicial. It's a, and I've been doing that. It's a judicial hardening. So that, properly speaking, that's what it is. God hardening the sinner judicially. What did David say? It's a recompense. It's what man deserves. What he's talking about is the sinner hardened in his sin. It's the sinner given over to what he deserves. He's appointed, as Calvin says, to the very thing his nature was leading him to. The man is on the broad path to destruction. He's going to hell. In fact, as the Puritans would say, he lives as though he's in a hurry to get there. He can't wait to get there. He has no interest in God or or heaven. God is appointing men unto what not only they deserve, but where they desire to be. You see, you don't harden a man who's upright. That's the problem that we often fall into when we question the justice of God's hardening. Though, again, let me say we ought not to question it. But often we question it because we're thinking wrongly about it. God is not hardening a man who is upright. Hardening occurs when a man is in the course of sin. And God not only leaves him there, 
and allows him to go where he's going, but he hardens him. He does something actively to him in his course and on his path to his own destruction. So we are face to face with the whole question of judicial hardening. And how does God do so? Well, it turns out the book of Romans has a lot to say about this. Paul has been talking about it all through the book. He was talking about it in Romans chapter 1. So straight away he's talking about it. The wrath of God which is revealed against all unrighteousness and sin. And there Paul outlines the first way that God judicially hardens. It is by giving over the sinner unto his lusts and his desire. He wants to go to hell. All right, I'll let you go. You see, there's something called common grace. God is restraining the sinner. He's, he's holding him back. But there comes a time when judicially as a recompense, God lets go. He does that with people. He does that with nations. It's a terrible thing for God to give a man over to what he desires most. In the course of sin, no longer to hold him back. That, that is one of the ways that God hardens the sinner. It's one of the ways that he reveals his wrath and his anger and his hatred towards sin. Not by holding the sinner back, but by giving him over. One of the things that I could say about this, and we ought to recognize this, is that the tendency of sin itself is to harden. You see, if, if the sinner has any tenderness left of conscience, it isn't because of himself, it's because of God holding him back. But just as soon as God lets go, sin itself will harden the heart and the conscience so that he will be totally immune to the motions of the conscience or to the pleadings of the gospel. There isn't anything you can say to such a man. He's given over. And what has done it to him? Well, it's sin. It's for that reason, by the way, that you could speak both ways about a man like Pharaoh. And you find uh, in, in um, Exodus, Moses doing both. He says, well, God hardened Pharaoh. But in an equal number of times, he says, hardened Pharaoh. To, uh, sorry, Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. You see, you could say either thing. Well, in one sense, God hardened him. But in another, you see, it was just his own sin hardening his heart. Why? Because that's what sin does to the sinner. But there's another way, and it's even stronger than what we find in Romans chapter 1, and it's what we find in Romans chapter 9 and here in, in Romans chapter 11, and uh, supported by scriptures of the Old Testament. And here God is doing something even more active. He isn't just letting go, but he's judicially hardening the heart. He's working upon the heart. He's working upon the eyes and the ears and the conscience. He's, made, he's closing them. He closes the eyes and the ears. He turns blessings into a curse. You see, again, this is the awful and the solemn mystery of what he does to the sinner. He speaks freely to him. He pleads with him to be saved, and yet, even as he does so, he closes the eyes and the ears. He fills the table, and yet he curses him. He puts a veil over the heart. Again, you say, is that just? Well, again, I warn you about such questions. Never question whether what God is doing is just. But also remember this, that he is doing this to men who hate him to begin with. Men who are by nature, again, as Calvin says, led to their own destruction, to, uh, to their own destruction. No, God is not answerable to us. But if we would consider his ways, we will always see that his ways are answerable to his nature, which is always perfect and just and true. And we will, we will thus find further reason to praise him 
Not just in the salvation of the elect, but in the damnation of the reprobate. I know that's a strange thing to say. But I say it. God is glorified in the damnation of the reprobate. God is glorified in the hardening of the sinner. I wonder if you believe that. That is the teaching of scripture. Do you realize that what God is doing when he does this is declaring his glory to us? That's what Paul says to us in, in, in chapter 9, verse 22. Well, he's indulging the man a little bit who wants to question this doctrine. I know it's not popular, he says. But what if God wanting to show his wrath and to make, known his, to make uh, his power known endured with much long suffer, suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? What if he wanted to make his power known? What if he wanted us to see the glorious power of his might and the deep, deep hatred he has for sin. And do you realize that this thought as well is meant to cause us to praise him in the way that Paul does at the end of chapter 11. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and then his ways passing, past finding out and so on. Yes, that too is part of what makes us praise God. Not just the glorious future for Israel, but the present work of blinding and hardening. Let me next briefly speak of what a terrible thing sin and unbelief are. Terrible if they can harden us like this, even those who are most blessed outwardly. Terrible if they arouse such things in the heart of God, namely a desire to harden and to punish and to reprobate. Terrible if they are able to blind us, if they can make God's blessing into a snare. Oh, what could be more terrible than sin and unbelief if this is what they lead to? Surely that is one of the conclusions we are meant to draw. But then lastly, let me summarize in light of this, the teaching of the Old Testament, which stands behind this grand argument that Paul is making in Romans chapter 11. The first of which is the love of God for his people, the Jews. This is what we saw in Deuteronomy chapter 7, and which Paul has repeatedly been stating in chapters 9 through 10. There's no way to question this, uh, insofar as I am concerned. All day long, I've stretched forth my hand to a disobedient and a wayward people. That's chapter 10, verse 21. There is God, the Lord, pleading with them, even as Jesus did in the Gospels, to be saved. The story of, script, of Scripture is the story of God's love for this people, of his desire to save them. Another thing that we could say, and again, I'm summarizing the Old Testament, is that it is a history of her stubborn rebellion. I've been seeking to save you, but you would not be saved. I've been pleading with a wayward, with a, uh, with a, a hard-hearted people. And so as a third thing we see in that history is a long history of judgment upon Israel for her sin. Not just in Paul's day, but the whole of the Old Testament is a history of God pleading to a wayward people, them refusing to hear, and thus God sending judgment unto them. And what Paul is saying is that the culmination of those many judgments has now come upon Israel. The predicted Judicial hardening has come. The climactic judgment has come upon Israel. She has been hardened. She has been given over. She has been blinded into this day of veil lies over her heart. 
But that's not the complete story, not from the standpoint of the Old Testament. It isn't the full story for one also finds both in the Old Testament, but also here in Romans chapter 11, as we'll soon see that Israel will be restored. Israel will be saved. Her eyes will be opened and she who was cast off will be brought back. That's also part of the picture that you will find in the Old Testament and being reiterated by the Apostle Paul here. Not by embracing her Jewishness, I say again, but by embracing him whom she pierced and weeping. We haven't gotten that far, but soon we will. But we must keep this in mind as we consider her present state. We can say with the Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, that to this day, a veil lies over her heart whenever the scriptures are read. And yet to this day does not mean that it will always be this way. For as Paul will soon say, In chapter 11, verse 12, now if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? Verse 15, if their being cast away is the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? I could go on, uh, but I'll just leave it there for now. Such indeed, he says in verse 25, is the mystery of Israel that she is cast off for the time being. But that the days are coming when she will be called and she will hear and she will return. That the Jews will join the Gentiles in worshiping Jesus Christ as her king and as her Messiah. Let me say this then in closing. I want to reflect upon something that I find in Ian Murray and Martin Lloyd-Jones, namely the subject of revival. This is what Martin Lloyd-Jones says. He says, you read the history of the past and the history of revivals, and you will find that they have often come at the end of a period of judicial blinding and hardening. So it is our business to pray for revival. Also, Ian Murray in the Puritan Hope uh, speaks of the Puritans view of the present period of apostasy among the Jews, not as leading to more apostasy, but as giving way to revival. That's the Puritan hope. The Puritans, as men who knew and experienced revival, looked forward with intense longing for this. They looked forward to a revival in which the Jews would come in to the church and prove to be a blessing to the whole church of the whole world. And so the purpose of considering Israel's hardening from the perspective of Romans chapter 11 or what I am calling generally the Puritan hope is not for us to decide, well, given the fact that God is hardened Israel, he must be done with them after all. She is hardened. She is blinded. She is apostate. That's it. That's the end. It's time to move on, except for a very, very small remnant of believing Jews. That is the position of many That is not the position of the Puritans. That is not my position. But the way to see the present hardening and blinding of the Jew is to see it as the Puritans did. And as I'm saying, the the Apostle Paul did in Romans chapter 11, that is to give way and to set the stage for something truly glorious. That is the calling of the Jews. Apostasy not leading to further apostasy, but as Lloyd-Jones says, in this long history of revivals, you will find that it's often come at the end of a period of judicial blinding and hardening. In other words, 
If God is really sovereign, as Paul asserts here, then nothing would be more like God than to display his glory among the Jews. Even as it seemed all hope was lost for them, even as he hardened them beyond repair to call them back, just as the hardening seemed to reach the point of no return or a fever pitch. What I'm saying is this. Let us not misunderstand the point, but to realize, as the Apostle Paul will soon say, I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so Israel, all Israel will be saved. Amen. Uh, Let us now come to the table.